everybody. Welcome to this week's BizNews Finance Friday. I'm Jackie Cameron from BizNews, and with me today I've got Craig Gradich, an award-winning financial planner. Welcome, Craig. Hi, Jackie. It's good to be here today. Thank you. And then we've also got Neilan Mora, who is a vice president of trading at the Purple Group. So uh, he's uh, one of South Africa's top experts on trading the stock market. So welcome, Neilan. Hi, thank you, Jackie. Nice to be here. Thank you. So just before we take your questions, and please do pop your questions into the box. You'll see a little question mark uh, on your screen. Before we start taking questions, I would just like to uh, briefly ask Nilan to give a bit of an overview of what the Purple Group does and what he does for the Purple Group. Sure. So um, it was a business that's uh, close on 20 years old. There, there are three primary divisions, um, GT247, which is our sort of online derivatives trading uh, offering. Um, there's Emperor Asset Management, which is our in-house asset management offering. And then latest uh, to add to the stable is Easy Equities, which is our cash equities business. And that, that business is about six, six years old and probably the one that's grown, grown the quickest um out of the three but we'll get into a bit of detail around you know you know what each business does and what products they offer etc uh, as we go on i'm sure okay thank you and then we've got craig who is he recently won an award uh, his latest award craig is a certified financial planner and he's been in the industry since the mid 1990s craig can you tell us a bit about your award and then also a bit about how you uh, organize how you manage personal finance. What is your approach with your clients? Yes, thank you, Jackie. Yeah, so uh, we recently won the um, IntelliDex uh, uh, People's Choice as top wealth manager. So our clients gave feedback in in that survey, and it, yeah, they're quite happy with how we we uh, interact with them, the advice that we give with how we charge for our services and things like that. So um, yeah, it's the third time we've won it in the last five years. So we're quite proud of that. And um, yeah, we, we're a classical wealth manager. So we uh, do everything from investment planning, retirement planning, risk planning and estate planning. Uh, my speciality is on the investment and retirement planning side. And yeah, the way we do things is uh, if we're going to make a recommendation, uh, there has to be analysis that backs up the recommendation. So we don't go in with with very firm views in terms of what we want to offer clients. Uh, we really need to get to understand the client first because out of the analysis comes any kind of solution that we would put in front of that client. So that's that's the way we run business. So we, we do things. Um, and yeah, that's that's GM Investments. We've been around since 2008. So we started out squarely in the middle of the last financial crisis. We got our license in October 2008. And um, yeah, just in time to build up a book for the current crisis. And how are you finding your, current, your clients are coping with the whole COVID-19 situation? Are, they, are you finding more people are coming to you for guidance or are they having to go and do their own thing because they're running out of money? What is the situation? Yeah, so we, we have clients from across sectors in the country, uh, you know, across various sectors. So we had clients who were impacted in March 
uh, they were taking salary cuts in March already with the, the first lockdown um, because the, the sector that they were in was very kind of directly negatively impacted. So, you know, as the crisis has unfolded, we, it, it started impacting on other clients. And also it, it starts, there's a kind of a compounding impact on, on various sectors. So, so some people expected they would, we would have been out of this thing by August, September. And it looks like, you know, it's going to be another year, potentially even, even longer of, um, of this, this pandemic that we're in. So, yeah, it's, it's been varied. Uh, we've had a few clients some older clients, uh, funny enough, uh, looking to profiteer out of this by buying Cecil at 30 bucks and uh, looking for other bargains in the market. So we've had a few clients who've, who've jumped headfirst into the market uh, in March and April, and they've done very well. Uh, I think what we had to do was contain some enthusiasm here and there and, and just make sure that the risk management was, was sound. Um, but we've also had clients who, where we've really had to restructure the, the plan and, and look at earlier drawdowns, bigger drawdowns and things like that. Thank you. And uh, we've got some questions coming through now. And Hunty Kruger just says, greetings from Amanzan Toti. Uh, greetings, Hunty. Hunty joins us every week. So um, nice to have you here. Uh, Neilan, how are you finding business? Are you finding that South Africans are also taking to day trading like ducks to water as they are in the US? Yeah, so, you know, our, our business is primarily online, right? Um, sort of all, all three offerings that, that we have. Um, the, the GT247 business, which is an online uh, derivatives offering, uh, you know, offering CFDs across indices, currencies, uh, commodities, a little bit of crypto, etc., uh, that's been fairly stable. Uh, there has been an uptick uh, in volumes that have come through and certainly new accounts. But most most notably from our side, um, about six years ago, we built a business called Easy Equities, which was meant to be a, a, a low-cost entry. I mean, the, the, the premise behind building the business was ultimately to address um, the barriers to entry for retail investors who want to start building uh, an investment portfolio um, you know, directly in, in listed equity. And uh, and uh, it's the brainchild of our CEO, Charles Savage, um, who basically, you know, sat down and measured measured all these barriers to entry. And and we said, well, you know, that's, that's the reason why when we started six years ago, there were approximately only 250,000 retail stockbroking accounts listed at the JC. Um, we've just gone past 500,000 accounts um, this month, if I'm not mistaken, is when we breached through 500,000 uh, equity accounts. And uh, we've learned a lot. I mean, you know, we we anticipated about and we, we had geared up for about 100 percent growth going into COVID um, for the reasons that everybody else thought was possible as well. Um, you know, largely around the fact that people are going to be at home, people are going to be looking to keep themselves occupied and get involved and literally just have time on their hands. And uh, coincidentally, we had something closer to 400% growth uh, in terms of accounts and uh, and funded accounts and activity. So it's been, in, it's been an incredible journey. Um, you know, the last sort of four months has taught us a lot. Um, 
we've we've learned you know more than we could have ever expected from uh, from data that we collect around activity and um, interaction with with clients. Uh, you know, um, average average returns, for example, from retail customers have have beaten that of the index, the benchmark index, um, both across our US US platform and our SA platform. So. You know, I, I think for us it was it was really about creating the platform that uh, that allows retail South Africans the opportunity to invest in a low cost environment without any minimums, um, no monthly fees, no platform fees, um, and just give them an opportunity. You know, and the other thing that's quite unique about that offering is um, is that we fractionalize shares. So you know, if somebody has a hundred bucks this month and they want to buy a piece of Naspers. Well, they can do that with us, you know. So you buy a hundred rand worth of NASPERS, and you continue doing that until effectively your position uh, grows to the sum of one whole share. Um, so yeah, there's lots of there's lots of uniqueness about that about that offering. Uh, coincidentally, um, both companies. I mean, GT two for seven last year won the Intellidex uh, Top Stockbroker Award, and Easy Equities was second. Um, Craig, those uh, those awards are coming up again soon, eh? <laughs> so we've got two uh, award winners here. So we've got Shaman who wants to know about Pumanati shares. Uh, Neilan, would you like to give your assessment on what you think about that? Shaman wants to know, do we think that BEE shares are beneficial? Um, and Craig, what do you think yeah. about this? Yeah, I think let me, let me bail Neilan out on that one. Uh, so <laughs> Pumanati is um, invested in multi-choice South Africa. Uh, it's yeah, it trades on a dividend yield of at the well at the moment it's about historical dividend yield of about sixteen percent. If you bought the share before the announcement, you would have gotten a dividend yield of over twenty two twenty three percent. It's a fantastic cash generation machine um, that multi choice business, multi choice South Africa. So it's not the multi choice group that you you're buying into. And um, yeah, it, it, it trades like a utility in that uh, you don't get much price growth out of it. So it tends to be a bit of price activity around the results, uh, leading into the results. And then once the dividend is known, you see the share price go up about 15 to 20%. And then once the dividend is paid, it becomes XTV. Uh, and it kind of falls back to about 90 rand a share. So, you know, you're buying it at 90 rand a share, you're getting a 22 rand dividend. Um, it's, it's a pretty decent return. It's, it's a better than equity return uh, just from Divi. So if you hold it for five years, you should get all your money back. Uh, the outlook for, for multi-choice South Africa, I think, is a bit tougher given COVID. So we should see people scaling down in terms of the packages they're using. And uh, certainly multi-choice is responding to those challenges. So it will be interesting to see what those responses are. The, the BE share that I think uh, looks the most attractive at the moment is Yebo Yetu, which is invested in Vodacom, uh, not Vodacom South Africa, which was the previous iteration of that deal. Now, when that the uh, deal ended in 2018. Uh, the new scheme flipped up into Vodacom South Africa, uh, Vodacom Limited. Uh, currently, 
Vodacom, I think, trades at about 133 Rand a share. And Vodacom, yeah, the dividend, they increased the dividend by about 6%. So Yebo Yetu uh, has a net asset value of about 75 Rand. If you apply a liquidity discount to that, you should get to a fair value of between 45 and 50 Rand. And it trades at 25, 26 Rand a share. So you're getting a fairly deep uh, discount to, to fair value and even deep, deeper discount to net asset value. Um, it's a funded scheme and the cost of debt has come down quite dramatically. In fact, the cost of debt, so the savings on interest works out to five rand a share. And this is a share that trades at 20, 25, 26 bucks, you know, and then the dividend increased as well. So just, just COVID's been good to, to Yebo Yetu, actually as a result of what's, what's happened. Uh, Sassel, the Sassel BE ordinary shares had a fairly reasonable discount to value, uh, trading at 80 bucks, and Sassel's at 144, 145, or whatever the case is. So a long-term investor would do well to, to get into that one at the, at the moment. If I don't think that Sassel will go below 80 again. Thank uh, yeah, you, that's a very comprehensive response. Thank you. Um, Wayne has a practical question. Uh, if using the Easy Equities platform, do the money, do the, does the money need to come from an SA-based bank, or could one use your own offshore bank? And he says, yeah, I don't want funds that have been legally transferred offshore stuck back in South Africa. Neilan, is that one that you can? Yeah. So I'm assuming Wayne is looking at our US offering, um, and there are a few there are a few options. So you could. Um, We've got approval to apply the one million discretionary allowance. So you could deposit rands and use uh, our Easy FX facility to actually convert your rands into dollars into a USD account. Um, or alternatively, you could deliver USD to us uh, in in New York and load your US bank details so that if ever you require those funds back, they go back into your US ba uh, based bank account. Thank you. And here's a, a related question from Frank. He says, we've been investing in US dollars and it has treated us very well, but to take money offshore at current levels uh, with the US dollar future very uncertain and with the presidential elections coming up, we're not sure what to do. So I guess it's all about timing. Craig, what do you think? Look, it depends if he's playing the long game or the short game. If he's playing the short game, timing's important. If he's playing the long game, the currency typically weakens four to five percent per annum over over time. Uh, but at the moment, yeah, it's, it's difficult. You know, the currency, I see it strengthened quite a bit this morning. Um, the last time the gold price was at this level, we, the RAND was a lot stronger. Uh, but it, 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 you know, with, with a lot of your borders still shut down for physical trade, it's unsurprising that the currency has, has remained relatively weak. Um, then there's also the, the challenge of all the stimulus that's taking place in the U.S. So there's certainly lots of dollars floating around the system, and, and that should cheapen the dollar over time. So, yeah, uh, perhaps he needs to consider another currency. Um, maybe look at euros, or get some diversification going on the currency front. Um, 
but I think it's it, it's difficult to sell a cheap currency and buy expensive assets in the U.S. at this stage. Doesn't make for a good investment thesis. Thank you. What do you think, Neilan? Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with Craig. You know, uh, I, I think attempts to try and time the currency for for certainly in the short term is incredibly difficult and and most frequently um you know people shout the loudest often uh, closest to the end of a trend so when we were at 19 rand everybody was calling calling the rand up to 20 and 24 and you just knew that it had to turn and this has happened so many times previously so you know i would say don't don't try and time it if um and and craig is right you know you've got to you've got to consider your horizon if you're considering over time to build up uh, an asset base in uh, well in us or anywhere for that matter offshore then do that over a period of time because you know the the act of doing it let's say every quarter rather than looking for a lump sum move and waiting for a move down to 12 you might never get that move and eventually you'll end up doing it at 19 out of panic only to regret doing it at that point so um if you know it it likens itself to to the discussion around around saving um there's empirical evidence that it's extremely difficult to time the market however um uh, historical evidence suggests that there's been not much difference between somebody that has applied all metrics that they could to try and time a market and invest versus somebody doing it constantly over a you know uh, at at regular intervals over a long period um and so i would i would definitely consider that um there's a lot going on in that space as well you know um we often you know i think i think the the, the feature around diversification is going to feature uh, a lot on your on your show and i think it has in the past as well um and as craig suggests you know look potentially for other currencies to look at i mean um the usd is attractive because it's publicized and and you know um commodities like gold and and oil etc are all priced in dollars so it, it, it's easy it's an easy point of reference but there might be better value else elsewhere um i know people have been looking at aussie dollar recently as well um euro but there's uncertainty around uh, well there was uncertainty around brexit uh, for a long period of time on that um but again you know there's a lot there's a lot happening um the, the system is flooded with, with free money um you get uh, no interest rate return um parts of in parts of europe it actually costs you to hold euros in a in a bank um which again leads to leads to the discussion around whether or not we think assets are overpriced you know at the current level i mean if if you're looking at us assets uh, if you make two percent in an annum you've uh, you've beaten uh, cash deposits by 10 times um and so you get this this exuberance that that almost suggests that you have to do something with the money you know and and that unfortunately comes at the expense of of proper risk management and and assessment you know the kind of evaluation that that craig and his team would would do um before before getting involved in in assets like thank you very much that's also very detailed responses there now tim says he has saddle shares and he says a percentage of it is tied up in saddle canisa should he sell the balance or wait out he'd love to buy more shares what do you think i should consider he says of course that's the million dollar question where are we all going to find the next saddle i suppose um Nina, mm. would you like to answer that one first yeah, I, you know, 
I think to answer that, you, you've kind of got to understand, understand why Tim bought Sassel in the first place. Um, what, what led to that decision? Um, was it a fundamental decision based on, on the subscription to the view that you think oil itself was undervalued? Um, was it a RAND play? Um, what, was it a value proposition from the company? Or did, I mean, like many people, bought it on the prospects of, of Lake Charles, um, you know, which has been uh, marred with delays, uh, cost overruns along the way, um, most recently uh, a brief interruption uh, because of uh, weather-related uh, concerns. Um, but, you know, all, all of that said, um, I I think at these levels, if I if I own Sasol, I would hold on to them, um, and maybe maybe with the view of looking to add into a bit of weakness. Um, so I wouldn't be all in at these levels. Um, you know, if it does come back a bit, I'd, I'd be looking to to add to to Sasol. And again, you know, that would be like a three to five year kind of view on it. Thank you, Craig. What are your what's your view on the, the Sasol question? Yeah, look, uh, Tim can't sell Kanisa. Kanisa doesn't trade. So he, he has to sit in there for a few more years. Um, I think yeah, he needs to have a look at, you know, what weighting the assessor make in his portfolio and what he's trying to achieve with his portfolio and if it makes sense in terms of of that analysis. You know, if he's overexposed to, to Cecil, then, you know, just as a principle, he may want to to diversify away from it. Um, but if it's a reasonable weighting in his portfolio, you can't do anything about Kanisa, just hold on to the Cecils. Um, take a yeah, take a three to five year view, as Nilan said, and he, he could do quite well. Uh, the world price seems to be holding up fairly well. If we get a vaccine sooner than expected, you know, then perhaps air travel resumes a lot quicker than expected and you see a pickup in the world price. Uh, that'll be good for Sassel. Hopefully, they, you know, the balance sheet repair process, um, you know, they they do better than expected on that front. Then, yeah, it could do well. So I think there there's a bit of upside and there's a potential for positive surprises as well. So I, I'm certainly holding on to mine. Thank you. And Ismail says the five-year history of the JSE is a mess. How does one invest, or is it better to hold on to cash? Nilan, what do you think? Is now a good time to invest in JSE stocks? Again, you know, I think you've got to be extremely selective at what you look at at the moment. Um, cash, cash has has its place at times. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't believe in a in a three or four percent uh, money market kind of environment. Cash is your is your first call. Um, Dividends, uh, dividends of late have been fairly sparse. Um, we've also seen many companies holding back dividends, not just reducing dividends. So you, that has to be considered. But again, I, you know, I think there's there's got to be a, a more sort of macro evaluation around where to invest. I mean, there might there there are pockets of there are pockets of um, I would imagine value across our local market. Um, and again, you know, it's it's not to say that if you buy now, the market is not going to go lower from now. I mean, it, prob it probably will. Um, however, the idea is of, is about how how you manage your risk on that entry. Um, the other the other concept that you know that 
we mentioned features already. Uh, try try and diversify uh, diversify out a bit. We we seeing great growth and great interest in ETFs um, and and the and the benefits. I mean, you know, all these things offer cons uh, as well. But the the benefits is largely comes with the fact that you know you're not you're not singularly exposed to a specific company or the management of the company or the or the related products of that company for that matter. Um, it gives you a cheap uh, uh, opportunity to di uh, diversify um, geographically as as well as um, uh, by underlying uh, asset class, if you like, or um, a market segment, if you like. Um, so that's that's something you should consider. So say, for example, you know, and it's something that I'm watching at the moment. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we will get there. Uh, on the financials, I mean, the banks have come back quite a bit. Uh, one can completely understand why, um, you know, during periods of economic distress, um, certainly banks are under pressure. Uh, the threats of bad debts increase uh, over periods. Um, and and you can understand why, you know, why they've had such a hard time recently. And certainly if you look at the price action on, on financials, they've come off quite a lot. Um, financials, broadly speaking, would include insurers. Um, you know, the, these are typically the things that are cancelled. Insurance policies are cancelled uh, during times of distress as well. So you can understand why those are behaving the way they are. Uh, I am keeping a left eyeball on it, um, and and the idea behind that is to kind of ease my way into a position when I, you know, when I think that they've exhausted this move down. But instead of choosing whether I buy, uh, for example, a Standard Bank or a Ned Bank or a Capitec or a um, APSA, um, one could look at, um, at the Satrix Finney, for example, which has a blend of these. Uh, underlying financial institutions and so that's something else to consider is you know just try and blend that risk so that there is diversification even if you buy a single instrument that you're not exposed to a a single company or its management team so mandar asks if anyone does not have knowledge of the stock market and is interested to earn money through this is this the type of investment that can help do you think that uh, people with no knowledge of the stock market should be uh, investing directly in shares, Neilan. Uh, I think there's a process of there's a there's an educative process that one has to go through. Um, you have to understand what you're doing. After all, it is your money, um, you know. Uh, and and history has proven uh, that even people who do know what they're doing and uh, and do have experience in financial markets do get it wrong. Um, you know, Steinoff is a great example. Many fund managers were exposed to the Steinoff debacle. Uh, Steinoff looked cheap at 60 rand, um, you know, on the on the move down. And um, so, again, you know, it doesn't guarantee you having having that exp that experience or that knowledge doesn't guarantee you that that you'd make money. Um, again, you know, you have to you have to measure what are you trying to get out of it? I mean, I, I heard earning an income or earning from the stock market in in the question um companies can stop paying dividends you know if cash flows if cash flows are tight um these are not things that are guaranteed so typically somebody somebody looking looking for an for an income stream would look at um you know almost fixed income securities where where you can you can uh, predict your cash flows and and live off those um so I would I would suggest that uh, you know attend attend webinars like this up the knowledge base 
uh, there's plenty of information on YouTube. And and then, you know, to to do a full analysis on your needs, speak to somebody like Craig, because that's what they do, you know, in terms of analyzing where you are in your life cycle, what it is that you require. Is it growth? Is it value? Uh, do you need an income from your investment? Um, what's your horizon? These are these are all things that will come up through discussion and through evaluation uh, and, and then ultimately be be married to a product that best delivers in terms of of what that person requires. Thank you. He has a question from Peter for Craig. Uh, Peter wants to know, with MTN's restructuring, does Craig think that Vodacom will be picking up the slack beneficially? don't know if that's a question that you want to answer. Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, well, I, I certainly hope so, because of course I'm heavily invested in Yebo Yetu. Which, which is uh, Vodacom. I mean, yeah, Vodacom's BEDL. Um, look, I think MTN does look look cheaper. In you know, they've been through the molds with their kind of risky domiciles, Nigeria, Middle East, um, and the challenges that they faced in in some of those those places. So, yeah, new management. I think um, Ralph is certainly a capable manager and uh, somebody you know the, described by the market as a safe pair of hands um, so yeah look at I, I would I would invest in both and in fact I am invested in both um, that way I own what 95% of the market so you know you don't, you don't always have to choose you know these are not soccer teams they're not religions you don't have to take one side uh, if you like the sector and it it's cheap and you think you can make money out of it uh, i would certainly uh, look at so look at both i've got vodacom via the yebo yetu scheme and i've got mtn directly because mtn was a whole lot cheaper a few months ago uh, when i bought into it um and yeah look i think if if they exit some of their positions at, at good prices then i think certainly there's there's some upside uh, to be seen you know, on, on the MTN stock. Um, so, yeah. So Thank you. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Good advice. Nidan, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, no, I, I, I agree. You know, look, look at the sector holistically um, and, and again, diversify within the sector. I mean, um, it, you know, it leads to the point that we were mentioning earlier. If you, if you like, for example, staples or, or financials, I mean, you don't, you don't have to go and choose one. Um, in fact, the risk profile of that position is much greater than if you had three, for example, um, in your portfolio. Thank you. Now, here's a question from Andrew, and this is a question that we get asked quite often. He says, I have SA shares. Would I be better off selling them and buying foreign shares? I will lose money on some of the sale of the SA shares. Is it worth holding on to SA shares in the hope of a comeback? He says he mainly has blue chip and property shares. Uh, who would like to take that question? Craig, do you think it's a good idea to sell? <laughs> Neilan, what do you think? Yeah, because you helped me earlier, I'll, I'll, I'll take this one. Uh, so, so property, property, property has, yeah, you're, you're right, Jackie, it is about timing. When were these positions put on? Um, you know, relatively, how far away are we from the entry? Um, 
you know, if we're going to say we we 70 percent uh, down on some of these property positions, then there's no point selling them, to my view at least. Um, so again, it is it is about timing. Property has been under pressure. Um, I think that the the move of all of us, um, you know, migrating our office space to to our home home offices um, has certainly highlighted many questions around the property sector and property prices. Uh, sorry, uh, shares of property companies have responded that way. Um, we've seen drastic moves lower, and people are questioning whether. Um, you know, office parks are actually still a thing of the future. Do they get reoccupied? Do tenants come back? Are they able to sign leases going forward, etc.? And and likewise, I mean, there were many questions around things like shopping malls, etc., as well. Because you know, on the one side of the equation, you you take a lease at a mall um, almost for the safety of of the foot traffic that goes through the mall. So somebody might not be going directly to your shop, but they might stop in your shop because they're going to the shop next door. Um, and that's what you pay for. However, all of us, well, many of us at least, um, have not gone to malls recently. And whilst you have that equation, you still have the expense side on the lease and the rent and the staff and stock, etc. So so the equation becomes unbalanced, um, uh, you know, lit literally because of COVID. And that's, you know, that's been the move in, in property. Um, I think it is healthy to have some exposure offshore any in any event, whether it's it's fresh capital that uh, that this client is putting in, or or whether it is you know taking off some of the profits of the profitable positions and uh, and taking that offshore for diversification. Um, the, uh, you know, leading from that, I suppose the next question is going to be, well, what do you buy offshore? Um, and, and again, I mean, you know, you look at these markets like like the Nasdaq hitting record highs and trading above the highs that we were pre-COVID, and and you ask yourself, you know, from a valuation perspective, it does it make sense? Is it sustainable? Um, we've seen some bizarre moves this year. You know, companies that have um, filed for bankruptcy and the share price doubles. Um, you know, that does not make theoretical sense. And and the fear the fear there is that you get caught up in this hype. Um, you know, with the inability to to assess the risk that uh, moves like that present, uh, simply because you've, you know, by the time you get to that stage, you've taken the bite around um, certainly trading dollar rand at 17 uh, plus a two or three percent haircut on on the fees that that are associated in doing that, um, and you you try you try to to recover that up, you know, uh, quite quickly. So, so you've got to be careful in terms of that decision as well. So, I I think it's healthy to have a a globally di diversified portfolio. Um, and so, if you're only in SA, I would certainly look to externalize some of that. Thank you. And now Gregory wants to know. He says he's been looking at the JSE All Share bobbing up and down. When is the next stock market crash? Craig. <laughs> I was just checking the watch. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, um, there's a big difference between the JSE and NASPERS. and you know, uh, if you look at SA Incorporated. SA Incorporated is is dead cheap. It's it's gone nowhere for for many years, and you know. Um, so to see any kind of collapse on on some of your small caps and 
your SA incorporated shares, you know, those would become incredibly cheap if that did happen. Um, so it would depend on what the driver behind the crash is. If it's a, something local, typically our, our crashes come, we import them from, from the rest of the world. So a global financial crash or a, what's the thing, a um, Asian crisis or a, uh, tech bubble bursting or terrorist attacks. Typically, when we have these big crashes in the market, it comes from offshore. Um, but we've had kind of a slow bleed in terms of South Africa with nine wasted years. I don't know, it's 11 or 12 wasted years now. And the USA Incorporated stocks are they, 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 they cheap, some would say for good reason. Um, but I think if we did have an external shock of some sort uh, and they were further driven down, I'd be looking to, to buy in at that point. When that will happen is, it, it, I have no idea, um, which is why the principle of diversification is so important. And it's, it's why you should have cash in your portfolio at the moment, because, you know, while on, from a return perspective, cash is giving you very little, it does protect your capital and it, it gives you that dry powder to, to get in, back into the market when you have some kind of, of market crash. Um, and you have Cecil going to, to 21 rand a share and, and things like that. So I don't know when. I think South Africa's fiscal position is, has deteriorated quite poorly. So there's perhaps a, some long-term risk there. Um, America is looking expensive. Um, the tech sector is, yeah, uh, you know, the, markets can be irrational longer than investors can stay solvent, is, I think is the, the quote. Um, and so people have been taking a bath on 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 shares like um, Tesla and, and a couple of the others. So yeah, it's, it's it's a tough question. There's no easy answer. I think if you apply the principles and apply the principle of diversification, if you don't buy expensive shares, uh, you know I think you'll do well over time. But I don't think anyone can give you an answer in terms of when the next crash will be. Thank you. I have a hunch that Neilan does spend some time trying to figure this out because you uh, you spend a lot of time looking at charts, don't you, Neilan? What is what are your charts telling you about where we are in relation to another crash, possibly? So, so, so yes, we 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 do, and uh, and that's on the trading side of the business, you know. So it's it's shorter term by by nature. Um, I mean the, the one thing the one thing I would I would add um, you know to what what Craig has just shared with us is the fact that there's there's a lot of free money floating around and you know that serves as a as a backstop um, quite often it's it's almost like there's a guaranteed stop in this market where it, you know you come off two or three or four percent and you just have to buy it because you know money is going to be thrown at it and you know that happens uh, you know time and time again there, there are certainly some some sectors uh, and some indices that are looking uh, too far stretched and uh, you know to to my mind uh, when looking at the charts i'm absolutely stunned at 
the not only the magnitude of this recovery we've had such a March lows, but the the pace at which uh, it's happened. Um, you know, I'm finding it very hard to justify in my mind um, any way how people can say that we're in a much better place now economically than we were six months ago. And asset prices are telling us that we are because they're rallying to new highs. But um, on the street, I mean, just about everybody I speak to is either themselves or knows of a closed business that has closed down or people unemployed or people laid off. And uh, and that's and that's scary because, you know, the, mar the market ultimately ought to be a reflection of that. So um, whilst I also agree that, um, you know, I think these these bigger moves lower are driven by exogenous things or assisted by exogenous things or started by them. I do think that you know it would be it would be an event uh, that is more globally inclined that that we will catch on to that leads us lower. Um, it, there is absolutely no way of uh, calling a top or calling a bottom. No one has the foresight. I mean, there are lots of systems and there are lots of claims around what one can use. Um, you know, and there and there's a multitude of analysis that one can do. But again, you you could still be wrong for a month or two or a year, um, applying just about every piece of of analysis that you know that you that you have. Um, technically, for example, I mean, there were there were some hints on on Cecil, and and again, you know, that's that's the most basic of technical analysis is looking at support and resistance, but again not highlighting what the magnitude of that sell-off would have been um likewise with with steinoff uh and you know you've got to remember also that sometimes these could be fake moves or very temporary moves you know a day or two and in, in and that would change the dynamic because if it were a short-term move um let's say over a short-term misinterpreted news article or headline uh, that would present a great buying opportunity um, so there's a there's a lot of interpretation risk that comes with that as well, but it, it is absolutely impossible to pinpoint the absolute top in terms of level or time. Thank you. Now William wants to know why on earth did PSG plunge this week by more than seventy percent? Craig, so that, that's yeah, the unbundled capitec. It's a simple answer. Um, so there was an unbundling as corporate activity. And yeah, so if William was holding PSG, I think it's the first or the second of September, you, you should see 14 Capitex for every 100 PSGs that he held uh, in his account, for which he didn't pay a cent, and therefore the value will come back. And I see PSG is up 20% like or something since, since that unbundling. So yeah. It, it's it's just simply corporate activity. Thank you. And then somebody wants to know what, what people often talk about selling in September. What are your views on that? Is there anything in the seasonality of the stock market? Yes, sell in May and go away, things like that. Yeah, it's it's not important that my investment strategy rhymes. Um, I think it's important that you pay attention to the fundamentals of what's happening. Um, yeah, I think typically people look at historical moves. Uh, I think it used to be October that was the scary month, not September. 
Um, so unless there's a bit of time inflation and people are trying to preempt the October move and start selling out in September. Um, but yeah, you know, I don't know how many Septembers were preempted by a, a pandemic um, or, you know, just the kind of stimulus that we're seeing in the markets and what's happening at the moment. So no, certainly I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't look at uh, kind of rhyming strategies. They, they generally, you know, there's some randomness in terms of how effective they are. Thank you. Now, Mary Jane says, how important are environmental issues when it comes to investing? She says, what about impact investing? And then she also says, Sassel is a no-go as far as she's concerned. So she didn't invest in Sassel. But what do you think? Do you think we should be staying away from companies that are the bad boys of the corporate world? Nilan, what do you think? What are your charts telling you? I, I, you know, I think there's a there's a growing there's a growing view um, that uh, companies need to become more responsible. There's uh, we are all enlightened and awakened to the fact of uh, uh, effects of global warming and and deeper reaching economic and economic activities that lead to potentially environmental disasters and the impact of this on livelihoods, um, sustainabilities. Um, Etc. So I I think it, I think there there needs to be a consideration for it. Uh, I think that um, individual companies will be will be pressured to adapt or change. Um, you know to become more accommodating towards it. Uh, I think it's gonna it's just gonna grow from here on in. Um, I, I must admit, you know, over over lockdown. I mean, and you feel the difference over lockdown with with the limited amount of traffic around. Um, the air has been much cleaner. Um, you know, many more birds are heard in the mornings, um, and it's made a difference. And and these are just subtle things, you know, that that you pick up on. Um, I'm personally, I'm not as sure if I'm ready to be as drastic as uh, cut out uh, certain companies entirely. However, would pay more attention to what the company's plans are towards um, you know environmental interaction. Craig, what do you think about socially responsible investing? Does it actually produce good returns? It can. Um, I think it's a, it's a long-term game. Uh, you know, unfortunately, management still seems to be incentivized on, on you know, more short-term metrics. So their focus would be on this year's profits, next year's profits, and issues like... Um, the environment and kind of the broader society um, are not always baked into those incentives. So I think uh, companies, some companies have demonstrated an ability to profit from being a bit more responsible and uh, kind of taking those ESG and triple bottom line um, factors into account where they're not only incentivized on, on profit, but also on the impact that they have on the broader society. Um, I was trying to think it was, I think it was Unilever where one of the, see, I think it was the incumbent CEO who, who was speaking more um, kind of passionately about ESG factors and uh, kind of baking that into how they, they run the business and, and, and things like that. And and the market uh, kind of punished him for, you know, talking about ESG and 
you know, they were interested in uh, how he was going to expand margins over the next quarter and things like that. But he stuck to his guns. You know, I think one of the products that came from that whole process was a stay-soft product type product where you only needed one run cycle, whereas previously you needed two or three to get the chemicals out. Um, and, and so we're kind of just demonstrating that if you kind of think deeply about these issues, that they can actually be good for business. Um, but where, whether or not you can find enough companies around that can deliver return on capital, because ultimately that's what investors want uh, over the investment horizon that the investor has and deliver to those ESG and sustainable kind of growth uh, uh, targets and uh, your triple bottom line. Um, I think that's that's the big investment challenge. We, we've seen a few companies go there locally, and so for early evidences, you know, the the returns out of those those funds hasn't been the best. Uh, so ultimately, capital will go where it gets the best return. So I think this is certainly a longer term game. Uh, but the more investors talk about it, and the more companies think a bit more deeply about these issues. I think we'll get to a point where where that's no longer a trade-off between profit and kind of sustainability. Thank you. Well, Marianne, I hope that answers your question. So we, as we come to the end of our webinar, we've got time for one more question. And um, this, this is a question that's been asked by quite a few people. What will the US election do to the market? So with that, how do you plan for this? So, um, Craig, how would you be realigning your portfolio or, or your investments uh, with a view to what might happen in the U.S.? No, I wouldn't be realigning uh, my portfolios because the U.S. is having an election. They have an election every four years. Um, they've been doing that for hundreds of years. and. You know, sometimes there's a short-term move in the market because perhaps policy of the in incoming is quite different. And I, I suppose a lot of investors are worried about the fact that uh, Biden is talking of increased tax, which is the responsible thing. Um, when your, I think your expected budget deficit is running into double digits. Um, it, it, it certainly would be responsible to, to start looking at, at raising taxes um, and, and trying to counter the, the effects of, of a weak fiscal uh, position. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't change uh, tax purely because of the election. I have no idea who's going to win. Um, I certainly hope it will be Biden. Um, that's just a kind of a unaffected, I, I don't have to deal with the ramifications of living in the US and having Trump for another four years or not having him around again. He is entertaining, but whether he's making the right decisions for, for that economy and, you know, just the lack of leadership through COVID um, kind of speaks volumes. Uh, so I, I certainly wouldn't look at any big changes. I may just keep some cash handy um, 
if there's a bit of short-term turbulence, uh, but I certainly wouldn't be making wholesale changes on the back of, of uh, yeah. an election outcome. Thank you. Neelan, uh, traders like volatility, don't they? Isn't this a good opportunity to make some money now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they thrive during periods of high volatility and high uncertainty. Um, uh, you know, I agree that from from a an investment uh, perspective in, in terms of exposure, no need to go and sell out half your policies and half your investments and, and wait. I mean, but definitely keep some cash available for or volatility. I mean, you know, the uh, currencies could could effectively present some opportunity from a trading perspective. Um, uh, dual listeds could, uh, as a result of their exposure and the impact that currency moves have have on that. So, so in the short term, then yes, you know, you could possibly get quite a few trading opportunities, but absolutely no point in in terms of changing your strategy or lightening up completely in anticipation of a I suspect everybody's going to be responsive anyway post post a surprise outcome um but um yeah from a trading perspective we'll definitely see some activity uh certainly in currency space I mean that tends to move the quickest um you know, currency markets have the deepest liquidity in the world uh, and they operate 24 hours pretty much so yeah that's where you'll see primarily the the initial responses great well thank you very much for taking the time to answer all these questions for our webinar attendees and thank you to all our attendees for joining and for your questions um Many people have asked for Neilan and Craig's details. So if you want to send me an email, there's my email address. And thank you very much. And we'll see you same time next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.